0: This is Brent Jensen, and you're listening to No Sleep Till Sudbury, the show where we talk about the music that makes your skin vibrate. Welcome back to my chat with David Quinton Steinberg. Last week was part one. This week is part two of a very lengthy chat that we had about all manner of things. This week features the songs that we didn't get to last week. So without any further ado, let's take up where we left off last week, shall we? easily do a four-hour show. Right. Right? Oh, yeah. Without... Totally. Without any effort. Totally. Um, so great list of songs here. And you got to come back because there's a bunch of stuff we'd oh, like but, to. But, um, your first song is the Beatles Penny Lane. Yeah. I got to say that when, when I saw your list, I was reminded of somebody who, and the Beatles are just so deep. Obviously, it's, you know, there's so much richness in that catalog, but, yeah. um, somebody said to me, what's your favorite Beatles song? And I froze. <laughs> it's hard, yeah, eh? Like, how hard is that? Yeah. You can't, you can't just have one. But I yeah. would say that Penny Lane, just in terms of its kind of sincerity and, um, sentimentality, is, is probably right up there.
1: Yeah. I mean, for me, uh, the, the reason the song hits me so hard emotionally is, um, when I first heard it, the age I was. Mm-hmm. You know, I was, I was very young. Um, my family was traveling through Europe at the time mm-hmm. we were in London. So it wasn't just Penny Lane. It was, it was some other Beatles songs that were being played ad nauseum everywhere. <laughs> um, and they got into me, they get into your soul that way. What happens when I hear Penny Lane is I am instantly transported to childhood. Mm-hmm. I have the feeling of being a child when I hear the song, yeah. it it's, pavlovian mm-hmm. i can sit there and listen to music all day long penny lane comes on and i'm like oh my god boom i'm back i feel like i'm seven years old so that that's why i love it and yes it's got that tremendous sincerity and a, and a wonderful use of instrumentation mm-hmm. and simplicity directness um, i'm sure george martin was a huge part of it but what a beautiful song they're they're just singing about their lives and and where they grew up and what they saw. Yeah. And there's no pretension.
0: And that's the beauty in it. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you saw it. James Corden did a little special with McCartney. Oh, I sure did. And they went to the places named in Penny Lane, (laughs) which just blew my mind. Oh yeah. 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 I mean, what was so
1: nice about that segment is the points in the show where they got so emotional. Yes. And I think Paul McCartney whom I don't know, but he appears to understand the power of, of his music, the power of these songs. Mm -hmm. How could he not? It's, it's been his whole life and he's been, you know, surrounded by so many people and met so many people throughout his life. I'm sure. And he knows the power of this music. It's fascinating. And boy, it is powerful. It really is. Like I could sit here and talk about all kinds of Beatles songs and probably put myself into tears for one reason or another.
0: Certainly. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah. But see, I like the fact that he, you know, when you, when you, you see him in, in situations like that, when people kind of profess their love and devotion to, to that music, he appreciates it and you can see that. And I really like that because that's not always the case with every artist. No. no you know? And I've, not. I've always thought that he was very, um, I don't know what the word is, but he just, he strikes me as a very sincere, you know person in that regard i think he understands
1: his power Mm -hmm. and uh, and i don't mean that in a negative way he understands that a few words a gesture a little hug a little acknowledgement from him means an awful lot to his fellow human beings Mm -hmm. and he's good about it yes so when i saw him play at the uh, acc a few years ago his interaction with with The audience is wonderful. Mm -hmm. He knows the power that he has to make people happy. And I think he likes making people happy, which is why he's still touring, because why the hell else would you do it? At that age, doesn't need the money. No, Doesn't need the aggravation. This man loves to entertain people. Mm -hmm. I think it's because he enjoys making human beings happy. What else could you ask for? And when you get really down to it and you strip away all the genres and all the bullshit that there is the king. Mm-hmm. That is the king. There's him and then there's everybody else. I agree. That's how I feel anyway.
0: Yeah, I agree. I've said that before. As
1: great show. as many people are.
0: Yeah. But there's none greater in my opinion. No. You know, you can, it, it doesn't, I mean, you can't, you can't possibly come up with anyone greater than Paul McCartney in terms of the prolific work that he has done yeah. in the way of songwriting. You can't. I mean, there are individual
1: songs that spawned, you know, little sub genres, <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's, it, it really is quite incredible. The body of the work and, and the impact that it's had. Yeah. So, you know, a few years ago when he did that song with, uh, which one was it? Kanye West. Yes. And there were definitely some people out there in the public that did not know who Paul McCartney was. <laughs> That's a little freaky.
0: Yeah, it's very strange. But we know who he is, and that
1: music will live on. Oh, there's no question. I love that old interview from the mid-'60s where Paul was talking about meeting a cab driver, and and the guy had some classical music in the cab. I think it was Mozart. And Paul said, you know, we are going to be the classical music, what we're doing now. Mm -hmm. He was right. Yeah. It really is. It's not that that there isn't serious classical music being – performed and written to this day, but the Beatles are classical music.
0: Yeah, certainly for this generation that will endure for hundreds of years. I I believe so. Yeah. Lest we talk about the Beatles for another two hours, which I could easily do. Yeah. That one's easy. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Bad finger baby blue is your next pick. Yeah. Tell me about this. I think baby blues, um, a perfect
1: pop song Mm. structurally, um, lyrically, the way it was executed, I think it's the perfect pop song, and it's I think it's one of the best songs ever written or recorded when it started getting used a couple of years ago in television, you know big American television shows. <laughs> I have to admit it made me a bit sad because Badfinger were a little bit of like a little bit of a secret, you know, yeah. No one really knew their stuff anymore. And then all of a sudden, kaboom. And it's like, it's great. And somebody made a lot of money and royalties and stuff. To me, it it is the perfect pop song. I've loved it since the day I first heard it as a child. And if I hear it now, I will not turn it off. It's It's just one of those songs. Of course, I became fascinated by the band and its membership and all the terrible tragedy that befell that group.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, three of them are are, uh, are no longer with us, and two of them died at their own hand, which is just monumentally uh, tragic. Mike Gib- Gibbons, who was the uh, drummer, um, the other reason I really love Baby Blue is some of what influenced me as a drummer came from that song. Hmm. You know, it's it's not a heavy uh, track. It's very musical. It's very melodic. Yet he he has some really interesting fills that he plays in the song. He doesn't just play it straight up. So just his approach to drumming was an influence on my playing. So that's one of the reasons I I like it as
0: well. Mm. It's it's great when you 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 hear songs and you pick up those little nuances, yeah, right, that actually stay with you for sure. And influence you over there. It wasn't really
1: like I've been playing drums since I was 11 years old. It's 47 years. Mm -hmm. It wasn't really until I got older that I truly figured out what, what had influenced me and why Mm -hmm. I play the way I do. And I'm not, you know, sitting here with some big head saying I'm so wonderful. I'm just saying I was kind of like, Oh, that's why I play like that. You know, there's these funny things Mm -hmm. that you sort of rediscover. After having distance involved. So I know how Ringo affected me. I know how Mike Gibbons affected me. Ainsley Dunbar, mm. uh, Neil Peart, um, you know, Keith Moon. Mm-hmm. I sort of get all that. Even guys that were obscure <laughs> that you would never have heard of, but who did one or two records. And I happen to have those records and they, they hit me in a certain way.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Brad Stakely, who, had a band in the late seventies called Screams. They were from Chicago. Okay. They did one album. I went to see them play at the Starwood in West Hollywood when I was living there. And they were kind of like a almost a mixture of of Cheap Trick and David Bowie. Mm. I like and that. I loved them. And Brad's playing just completely got absorbed uh into my brain. Mm-hmm. And I think it influenced me. Yeah. So I talk to him on Facebook all the time ah. and we laugh about all kinds of funny things. He plays with the Romantics now. Oh, he's really? He's the Romantics tour drummer. Uh, he's a working drummer. Yeah. But it's funny, you can be influenced by very small things. Yeah. You know, band who made one record, one single. Yeah. The band Thundermug had a song called Africa. Time. It was a big local hit when I was ten years old here mm-hmm. in Toronto. There's some drumming on that record that absolutely affected me forever. Mm. So it yeah. can happen that way. Just those little nuances. Yeah, right? it's not necessarily all about John Bonham. That's right. It's about all kinds of of, of interesting things that yeah. can that can come in and and uh, affect the way you play music or or feel music or see it.
0: Or Just tweak you somehow. That yeah. It's it's very odd. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of odd, Frank yeah. Zappa, <laughs> wow. Peaches and Regalia. So this
1: is funny because it's also a childhood thing for me. I went to summer camp when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. I think I would have been 10 years old. Okay. One of the counselors in my cabin brought a record player. Mm-hmm. So he had a record player and he brought up like 10 or 15 of his albums. Okay. And he would play them. I still remember some of the records that he had. One day he... Pulls out this Frank Zappa record called Hot Rats. I look at the cover and in my little, you know, innocent 10 year old mind, I'm like, what in the <laughs> hell is that? And who is that person? Yeah. What the hell? And, you know, I'm opening up, it was a gatefold sleeve. I'm looking at pictures of Frank Zappa and, you know, Ian Underwood and, and all the psychedelic coloring and the strange album cover. And I was like, Are you going to put that on? And he says, (laughs) yeah, man. So he puts on hot rats and I hear peaches on regalia. Yeah. And, um, I can honestly say I listened to the hit parade. I listened to chum AM. I knew I already at that age knew quite a lot of pop music and rock music. I had never heard anything like that in my life Mm -hmm. ever. And I was transfixed by it. Mm-hmm. It was um, strange, wonderful, melodic, cartoon esque, and as and I listened to the rest of the record too, mm-hmm. believe me, it all got into me. Also, it must be a camel, Little Umbrellas, Gumbo Variations, Son of Mr. Green Jeans. They're they're all like I can recite almost every note. So. That song introduced me to a whole other world of, of, of music, strange music, progressive rock, which I got into as well very, very shortly after that. But that opened up that door for me. Oh, it's not all just like dancing in the moonlight by King Harvest, right? right. Like there's all this other stuff out there. Yeah. So it was a door opener. And again, it catapults me back to that moment in my life. I absolutely loved Frank Zappa until 1978. So, I'm going to say that I loved him until Zoot Allure. Okay. <laughs> um, so without without getting all, you know, um Zappa geek on you, it's like everything from Freak Out, you know, all through Chunga's Revenge and Overnight Sensation and Apostrophe and all those records, love them. I loved Zoot Allure where he lost me mm-hmm. was when he did shake your booty mm-hmm. more comedy coming in i think it's the 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 worst period in his sort of you know recorded catalog uh, i'll tell you something hilarious when i was in law school mm-hmm. one of our professors was really into zappa okay and he started complaining about some of some zappa records you know they're not good they're not this and and he was starting to piss me off yeah. Cause I know the ones that I don't like, but whatever. He starts talking. And I said, let me ask you a question, man. I'm really curious. What was I, How many books have you written? Like law books? Mm-hmm. And he went two. And I went, okay. So what we should maybe do is when you've done 56, yeah. we'll come back and we'll see how many of them are really great. <laughs> Did
0: you say this in front of the class?
1: <laughs> no, no, no. He was after class and he laughed. You know, it's like, it's, it, Because the fact of the matter is, you know, Frank Zappa was so incredibly prolific that, you know, yeah, he's going to make some silly stuff. And and I hate that whole untouchable thing that some people have with artists where you're not allowed to say, you know, that some of their output wasn't great, but some of his output wasn't great. Mm -hmm. And it it was, you know, nothing of interest to me. The stuff that was great is is so incredibly important to me. And as a figure, there were two people in music that… Did the same thing to me. Frank Zappa and John Kale. Okay. They're, they both come from backgrounds where they're using mixed genres and experimentation. They're both classically capable. Yep. Uh, John Cale as well. Plus they have attitude. Yeah. They have attitude. So Frank to me was kind of like this mad musical scientist genius who also was like a bit of a punk. Yep. With the, with, you know, and yeah, he had his influences and everything like that, but, but this incredible originality and guts to come out and be that guy in 2019. Hey, it would be wonderful. Doesn't mm-hmm. take any guts though. Yeah. You do anything now. No one gives a shit in 1966. Go do the freak out album for MGM. <laughs> see what happens. Exactly. <laughs> go record God Save the Queen in 1977 in yeah. London, England and go see what happens. Right. This is what people don't understand is you have to look at the music in the context of the times in which it was done and to know, you know, what kind of social impact it would have.
0: That's a really great point. You know, I think that gets lost a lot.
1: It really does. And this is why I say Marilyn Manson was the last true rock star. Hmm. Interesting. I firmly believe that because he was the last guy to really make us stand up and go, what the hell is this guy doing? Mm-hmm. What is this all about? This is a little scary. I'm a little bit off kilter here. Mm-hmm. You know, some, some people might say, Oh no, there's nothing scary, but you know what? I went to see him at varsity stadium in 1997. I think it was yeah. just because he was getting all this press. And I was like, okay, I can see that he's sort of kind of like this generation's Alice Cooper, but I want to check this out. Even though I'm an older guy, I'm going. Yeah, And, it freaked me out. Really? First of all, it was phenomenal. Yeah. It was powerful as all hell. And he was capturing a sort of, you know, really amazing horror movie vibe and all this stuff. Mm-hmm. And uh I think he's the last real rock star. Hmm. Who else has come out and made us sit back and say, uh oh, Sam Smith? <laughs> Like really, who gives a shit about any of these guys? They all sound the same. They're talented, but there's nothing that makes you go, oh my God, that's really crazy. Mm-hmm. That's really different.
0: I'm not a fan of this stuff, but there was a band called Slipknot that yeah. came out. Sure. I think after. I put
1: Slipknot in the same categories as Manson. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, certainly. They're
1: doing something different. different. I you're right. They're like They're hard to listen to.
0: Yeah. It's but, too heavy. It, right. Yeah. But it, it's but in terms of the intensity, to your point about Manson kind of taking it a step further, because a lot of people tried what Cooper did, and, yep. they, and they failed miserably often. But that's where Manson, you know, I think was very successful. And after that, Slipknot got people's attention. You know, the yep. music wasn't great, but it was a, you know, you're talking about in the same context that you're talking about Manson, Slipknot was legitimately scary. Yeah. I
1: think, but you know what's interesting when you are talking about musical artists that shock people. Yes. If we yeah. go through history, mm-hmm. there's one thing that they all have in common, what's the that? successful kind of shock artists. Mm-hmm. And that is a great amount of intelligence. Mm-hmm. Alice Cooper, wit, humor, intelligence. Yes. Manson, my God, he's got it in spades. Yeah. You look at anybody who, who kind of shocked us john Lydon. Mm-hmm. have you ever seen john Lydon interviewed this man over the last 40 years is probably one of the most entertaining interviews in music yeah yeah he's hard to take and yeah he's going to let you know what he thinks and he's going to be a pain in the ass but god is he good mm-hmm. and Steve baders was very similar to that really oh yeah these were complete personalities when they were being interviewed when they were performing when they were recording, they're recording there there's a complete personality at play mm-hmm. it's not guys in in their flannel t-shirts and their beards talking about their banjo playing yeah okay it's or i played on this guy's album man no 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 it was a, a personality mm-hmm. you know i i uh worked with gene simmons a bunch of years ago we got in this really funny conversation probably uh he was engaging in it because it was amusing to him at that moment because he doesn't probably have a lot of conversations like that. Okay. We were talking about music. Yeah. We we're talking about Slade, mm. you know, and we were talking about old bands. We we're talking about the Sweet. And I got into this conversation about, you know, when I first started listening to kiss, it was 1974. I was mm-hmm. 13 years old. I, for, for six years, sat there wondering who are these guys? What do they look like? What planet are they from? And he started laughing and he said, he said, yeah, in those days, what did he say? Alice was a a psychotic axe murderer. David Bowie was from a different planet. Mm -hmm. We were comic book heroes. And I, and I said, yeah, and I miss that. I do too. I miss it. I miss the mystique. The mystique and the mythology. It was so great. Yeah. You know, it was a really interesting conversation. I'm sure he's thought about these things four billion
0: times over the course of his life. And been reminded of
1: them. But, um, but it's a fun conversation to have.
0: Absolutely, it would be. Because it's, it's 100% accurate. Yeah. If you think about that, there was a mythology. Yeah. There was certainly a lot of mystique because there was a lot of distance between, you know, the fan and the artist.
1: I remember hearing some guy. It was in the early eighties. It was some, some artist. I don't remember who it was. And he was on Q107 and he was having an interview and he started talking about his record deal. You know, the A and R guy came out and, you know, mm. negotiated the record deal and the, uh, and the advances. And, and I, and I, I was with my girlfriend in the car and I said, it's over. We're coming to an end. Rock mm-hmm. and roll is dying. Mm-hmm. Who wants to hear about your stupid record deal? Right. Are you kidding me? It's like, because I come from that world where when you're on stage you're on stage yeah so sorry i don't want to you know see some guy picking lice out of his beard playing his uh <laughs> his acoustic guitar and you know talking about his record deal i could give a shit yeah you know to me it's like when you go on stage you have an obligation to to communicate and entertain and perpetuate. But that's my generation man yeah well it's too. not Every generation. It's not. Or every it's, artist. It's not today's generation. No, but That's I'm sure, sure some artists feel that way now. Mm-hmm. We just don't know exactly which ones, but I'm sure we could sit and pick some out that really are, <laughs> um, that really are sincere and that are the real thing. I would never ever venture to say it that, that there aren't some artists that, that out there that are sincere and oh, there's don't no really believe in what they're doing because there are some great ones.
0: Yeah. Some of them
1: don't stand a chance because the business is so hammered.
0: Is is there even a business? Barely. Yeah. You can't. Yeah. I totally agree, Dave. You can't throw a blanket on these things. Generalizations are what's killing the
1: world right now. Mm -hmm. Everything's a generalization. If you're an old white guy, you think this way. Yeah. If you if you don't do A, B, and C, you're not diverse or you don't support diversity. Everything's a generalization. U.S. politics, well, maybe ours now too, right and left, all generalizing. Mm -hmm. And I was brought up in a house where you got in trouble if you generalized. Mm, Interesting. So it stuck with me. Mm -hmm. My father, oh boy, that was one of his big ones. If I sat down at the dinner table and I said, all these guys, all that so-and-so, he he would always say to me, do not generalize. Every person has their own story. I like that. And you can never generalize. So all these left-wing and right-wing fascists that are running around right now with their checklists and they want you to say, oh, I believe in this and this and this. It's the new McCarthyism, (laughs) you know? So if you're a centrist who is issue-based, probably extremely liberal and a whole bunch of things. And maybe I'm a little bit more conservative on a couple other, you're not allowed to be that way anymore. Mm -hmm. And, and that's, that's really disheartening. Yeah. And, uh, so I would never use the brush to paint all musical artists now saying, ah, they all stink or they're all this or they're all that. It's not true. There's some incredible stuff out there. Certainly. It's not necessarily getting a chance because the business isn't there. So I love a lot of this what they call neo prog. Mm. It's new progressive rock. Okay. Some of these guys are absolutely astounding, and the music's great. You know, I guess the 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 sort of pinnacle of that would be Stephen Wilson, who's from Porcupine Tree, and he's the guy who's done a lot of the remixes of these classic old albums by Jethro Tull and Gentle Giant, and Yes. And I really love what he's doing, and the guy's masterful. He's mm. not an insincere – or sorry, there's not a uh, – uh uh yeah, there's not an insincere bone in that guy's body. Uh-huh. He's all sincerity. So, yeah, that's where our Frank Zappa talk led.
0: <laughs> that was a pretty big uh, – <laughs> all right. David Bowie,
1: Life on Mars. Oh, God. So, it's like, first of all, such an incredible song. Oh, yeah. And it's so – Brilliantly written and, and executed and produced. Yeah. But what that song, uh, did for me, again, as a young guy was, uh, just like Frank Zappa, it opened my mind. It was another door. It was theatrical. Mm-hmm. It was dramatic. It could have been in a film. Yes. Um, it evoked pictures in my mind. It's a miniature movie, uh, captures the genius of Bowie. So well, and it was interestingly enough, somewhat early in his career. It's mm-hmm. on the Hunky Dory album. Yeah, how amazing! It just opened up that whole other part of the world.
0: This whole um, record, really. Yeah. You think about Andy Warhol, quicksand.
1: Yeah, well, you talk about the politics of, of of music. We were talking about that before, and the context of the times. Mm-hmm. If you went to see that Bowie museum. Yeah, I did. Exhibit? Yeah. So you'll remember, and I remember, people hated him. Mm -hmm. I'm not talking about people that knew music and loved music. I'm talking about the general society, the grownups. They hated him. He was androgynous. You didn't know if he was gay or straight or both. That drove people nuts. Mm -hmm. The same people that used to make the bars close in Toronto at 1 a.m. You know, it's like- they hated him and everything he stood for, and now, of course, it's all reversed, and we celebrate him, and we celebrate what he brought to the table, yeah. and how he opened our eyes, and he did open our eyes. Oh, certainly. And I listened to Bowie. I listened to Queen. Queen 2 was the one for me. It did the same thing. Yeah. It was like, holy, jeez. like there's this whole other part of of society where – incredible music is coming from. And I couldn't have cared less about their gayness or, or straightness. I, I couldn't have cared less. It was what was coming out of the grooves on those records. Yes. He was the one who brought that to me and so many other millions of people. Right. Mm-hmm. Almost in an unspeakable way. Yeah. Would you turn that song off if it came on? Never,
0: <laughs> never. It's ever. so
1: gorgeous.
0: Yeah. And you know, you said earlier, it sounds like it's from a film. It really does. Yeah. Like it's just so. Visual. The orchestration of it. And it's just very grand. It's a grand song. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And I think Rick Wakeman played piano on it. Mm -hmm. I think so. From Yes. And isn't it funny how you get a little bit of that cross pollination of the music that you love. And then realize there are all these kind of weird um, combinations of people. Phil Collins from Genesis, Hmm. the good version of Genesis, with Peter Gabriel. I loved Phil Collins' drumming. He played on John Cale records. Hmm. Rick Wakeman played on David Bowie records. Ainsley Dunbar from Frank Zappa's band played with David Bowie. Oh, I didn't know that. On the Diamond Dogs tour. Oh, really? There's a lot of cross-pollination amongst musicians that you love Hmm. in the funniest ways. You know?
0: which makes perfect
1: sense. Yeah. All of a sudden you start thinking, wait a minute, is there like some kind of string running through all of this? Mm-hmm. Maybe there is.
0: Well, that's what I was saying about the genealogy. It yeah. makes perfect sense. And and it validates your love for these things, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Dead Boys, Sonic Reducer. Yeah. So it's one of the great punk anthems.
1: And just because I ended up playing with Steve Bader's didn't mean that i wasn't a big dead boys fan they were my favorite punk band mm. so when i was 15 and 16 and really got into the new wave as we called it uh dead boys were my favorite mm-hmm. and why were they my favorite well in retrospect i know exactly why they were a combination of alice cooper mc5 stooges dolls they were very aggressive and they played mid tempo. Mm. They weren't playing too fast, and they were pretty good players. There was some very solid rock and roll thing that was happening there with real with a real reckless abandon attached. So it was the first punk album that really, really grabbed hold of me. If I were to identify a couple of strange things in my life, I've been calling this the Karmic Boomerang. Okay. I talk to my wife about it all the time the karmic boomerang. It's when something happens to you, you have experiences, you get to know people, whatever, and it comes back in your life in the strangest way. Here I am as a 15, 16 year old starting to really get interested in punk rock. One of the things that absolutely freaks me out is I see the damned on television when I'm babysitting Mm. in 1976, they were so subversive and so different And I was like, who are these guys? And they're from London, England. Mm -hmm. And I'm sitting as a high school student in Toronto, Canada, watching them on television. How weird is it that three and a half years later, I was playing in a band with the lead guitar player from The Damned. Yeah, That's pretty weird. Mm -hmm. How strange is it that I loved the Dead Boys? They were my favorite punk band. And- Within two years, I was playing with Steve Baders, <laughs> who was living in New York City while I was going to high school in Toronto, Canada. As I think you know, I, I work with uh, Rush, with mm-hmm. the band Rush. I always remind them every New Year's Eve, you know you know where I was on my birthday? My birthday is New Year's Eve. You know where I was? My birthday, 1976, my 16th birthday. I was at Maple Leaf Gardens seeing Rush. <laughs> and we laugh about that because I'm their lawyer. Yeah. How strange. That's very strange. Those are karmic boomerangs. <laughs> when things come back in this bizarre way, it's also what makes life kind of fun and funny.
0: I don't know if many other people can say that that they've they've had that many crazy karmic experiences in that way. Think about that. Yeah. It's crazy. It's happened to me a lot. I think if people think about it, they will see
1: that it's happened to them that people drift in and out come back reappear it's just something you have to sit down and sort of think about in the context of your own life mm. and it and it's kind of there yeah yeah sonic reducer just kicks ass <laughs> <laughs> and and you know it it brought me into that whole world of, yeah. of that kind of music when I really think about why I love that kind of music so much, it was aggression. Mm-hmm. I was 16 years old. I was pissed off, and I, and I wanted to play aggressive music. That was a big part of it. Mm-hmm. My first original band was 1977 with um, Jamie Gray, James Gray, who played in Blue Rodeo for 12 years. hmm And a guy named Tim Broyd, who was a guitar player, he was an early version of Coney Hatch, Mm -hmm. and this incredibly talented bass player, Mitch Starkman. When we were 15 and 16 years old, we had an original progressive rock band. We were being looked at by labels. We were broken up by some of the parents of the guys in this band. The anger that I had after that drove me towards punk. Really? That's how it happened. So as a 16-year-old, I was up at the abandoned Phillips building with my first punk band called The Androids, Mm -hmm. and the ugly rehearsed there, the vile tones, the diodes, all of us. But it was the anger of what had happened to my little prog band. So you might get a kick out of this. Me and Mitch Mm -hmm. and Tim, the original members of our band, which were called Syndrome, together with our old friend, Anton Evans, who was around in those days, musician producer, we've recorded two of our songs. Really, They are intense, progressive rock songs written by us, Mm -hmm. primarily Jamie Mm -hmm. in 1976. No. And we have had to reverse engineer them. It took us months because the chord structures and parts Mm -hmm. were so complicated. And we are, 99% done we Mm. are putting final tweaks on the mixes and if you like prog rock that was written in 1976 that evokes gentle giant and yes and genesis Mm -hmm. you might really get a kick out of this wow and it's to honor our friend jamie died five years ago Mm. at 53 years old he was a, a, a mad little genius that boy we wanted to do, do this for him. We wanted to do it to like honor him. It's not about making money. It's not about touring. It's not about selling merch. It's not about nothing. It's about our soul. Mm-hmm. We just wanted to do something soul satisfying and, and boy has it been soul satisfying. Yeah. And the vibe in the, in the studio when we've been recording and stuff is just, there's just a lot, not to sound like one of those hippies, but there's just a lot of love in the room. Boy. Yeah. And a lot of laughter about Jamie, so it's a real nice celebration of of his life. That's great. When so, can we expect to hear this? I will. I will be done uh, on the two, and I can get them to you probably in the next few weeks because we're we're basically done. We're doing final tweaks on mixing right now. The guys are real perfectionists, particularly Anton and Mitch. I've kind of checked out. I said, guys, I can't. I'm a punk guy. I, I don't <laughs> you know. I was done weeks ago. <laughs> They're talking about pull that down two T- DBs and and pull this down and what system are you running that through? You know, I'm leaving it to them at this point. Good, but but it's been uh, such an incredible experience and going back and learning parts that you wrote mm-hmm. 42 years ago. Yeah, that was somewhat odd, but yeah, it's been a, a wonderful experience. Wow, and we're we're very proud of ourselves for doing it. it should be, and we know that Jamie's going to get a kick out of it wherever he happens to be Mm -hmm. right now. Mm -hmm. So I will definitely play them for you.
0: That's great. Please do. I'd love to hear them. Two more tunes. This is an interesting pick. It's a Rush song. Nobody's Hero from Counterparts. So what's the story behind this?
1: Nobody's Hero is, uh, I think, very, very personal to Neil. There are some very interesting messages that are being conveyed in that song about heroics and heroism and who's deservedly supposed to be a hero in our society is it a baseball player is it someone who um comes up with a cure for cancer is it someone who saves someone's life what is a hero what should we be looking up to he also gets into um victimhood and some very uh, sad things that have happened to people that he knew that are that are alluded to in the song One of the verses is about, uh, Kirsten French, who was a victim of Paul Bernardo. Neil knows the family very, very well. He's from St. Catharines. It's dealt with in the song. I had no idea. Yeah. It's in the, it's the second verse. Okay. The first verse is dealing with, uh, you know, being a, a heterosexual male. And of course, the song is 26 years old. So again, contextually, a little bit of a different time. Mm-hmm. And his experience in, um, sort of discovering friends that were gay and, um, being involved with their lives. Uh, so it's, it's got this, this eye-opening thing, but also some tragedy. Mm-hmm. And what constitutes a hero? Are you a hero because you've been a victim? Are you a hero because you've done something good for the community? Or are you a hero because you're a glamour puss? I think that the song is incredibly uh, relevant to what society is going through right now, where we're trying to figure out who we value in 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 society and in the community and maybe who we shouldn't be um, valuing in the same way. I'm not talking about respect. I'm talking about valuing for heroism mm-hmm. um, or heroics. And, and, and I think it's very relevant and the eye opening aspect of pain and discovery and, uh, how difficult that can be, um, as we open our eyes to new things like diversity mm-hmm. or like dealing with people's tragedies or their mental illnesses. I think it's all wrapped up in that song and I get chills when I listen to it.
0: Well, I'm going to hear it in a completely different way. The next time I hear it. Yeah. Wow. Well said. There is one more song on your list here, and it is from a mutual friend of ours. His name is yeah. Blair Packham, and it's "Proof."
1: Well, you know, I've known uh, and played music with Blair since um, 1982, hmm. off and on. He was doing his um, new solo album a couple years ago. Mm-hmm. I guess it is now. Of course, gave me a copy, and I put it on. I thought it was fabulous. He's he's such a uh, a brilliant and and capable songwriter and performer and singer. And I was listening and all of a sudden I get to the song proof and it hit me so hard and it wasn't after three listens or 10 listens. It was one listen, you know, the way he sings, the lyrics are not hidden. He enunciates his words, you know what he's saying. And there's a directness. Then we've had some musical evenings where, you know, Blair's, performing solo and i'll say you know do you want me to come down and and play some brushes or something you know yeah yeah so we've done that i don't know half a dozen times over the last year or so and uh, it's very loose it's very fun not talking about the jitters reunions but the blair performances Mm -hmm. and when he does proof i find it very very difficult to keep my emotions in check yeah it's It's that kind of song. So what is it? It's about, as he describes it, I think he started writing the song thinking he was an atheist through and through, and he ended the song by maybe not being totally sure. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean it's, you know, a, a conversion song, and it doesn't mean it's a religion song. It's hardly that. It's about analyzing your own spirituality and figuring out where it all fits in and not to speak for him but the way i hear the song is it's about sort of an inner awakening vis-a-vis your own personal spirituality your own questions that maybe you have with a positive edge put on it you know so much of uh, discussion around religion and and belief in god or whatever it is often has arisen out of a negative event why did that house burn down? Why did the, the plane crash? Why did the cr- That's not what he's doing in this song. He's doing the opposite. He's saying, is there something that exists? Maybe there is, but just look over here. Look at these wonderful things that happen. These things that give us a certain feeling. It's got to mean that there's something there, mm. but we don't have
0: to give it a name. It's like the antithesis to dear God by ecstasy.
1: Well, isn't it funny? Because that was one of the songs I had on my list. Are you serious? Yes. And I was like, I don't have room for Dear God. How about and, that? And I love Dear God. So do I. But you know what? As far as I wanted to put in one kind of spiritual type messaging song, that's the one for me right now in 2019. Mm. Dear God is a different period. Yeah. And by the way, the message of Dear God – Has played out now so many times that it's kind of like, yeah, you're right, Andy. (laughs) It's true. (laughs) (laughs) You're right. It's very true. You were right then, you're right now. In fact, he's probably more right now than ever (laughs) (laughs) because this world is not so. Yes, I agree. My father had such an interesting observation. He's 89 years old now, Mm -hmm. but about 10 years ago, we were having this discussion and he said to me, when I was a little boy and I read a lot of science fiction books, so we were talking about late 30s into early 1940s, and they would be these fantastical stories about technology and sci-fi and all these things that that humankind was going to create. Mm-hmm. He said, I always thought that together with the advancement of technology would be an advancement of morality Mm. and ethics that would go along at the same time so that humans would advance together with the technology. And he said, I came to realize it's only the technology. Mm -hmm. Humankind has not advanced. And I'm not talking about you know the folks that are working at the Out of the Cold program, and the good people that are involved in in various uh, philanthropic uh, you know activities. I'm talking about the world, the world. You know, and I don't have to think too deeply about it. I I, I can open up my phone right now and tell you about the the two. School shootings we've had in the last week, two, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. where two young boys who were who were defending their classmates and trying to save lives died in the process. And Saudi Arabia executing 37 people because they put something on Instagram. I see what my dad's saying. Mm. And uh, and I think it's true to me. If the world survives very much longer and I'm not talking in our lifetime, I'm talking whatever. It'll be AI That'll destroy us because at one point we will have, I hate to sound like Steve Bader's. He was a master (laughs) conspiracy theorist, but at one point, Brent, Mm -hmm. we're going to have robots that are going to look, feel, act like the opposite sex. Mm -hmm. This is going to destroy us. I was in Japan last summer and I saw a female robot with facial expressions Eye movements that were following you across the the hallway, Mm -hmm. smiling, talking, wearing a dress. I was like, Oh boy. I was reading about that the other day. We're headed to the end, man. This is the stuff that's going to kill us. Stiv was so funny. I will just, I'll just lay two really, really quick ones on you. Sure. You'll see what I mean. In 1978, a video game started. It was all pinball. Mm -hmm. A video game came out called Pac-Man. You remember it. Yep. Then a second one called Space Invaders. I do. You remember that too. Mm -hmm. Then a third one, which was more challenging and more difficult to play called Asteroids. Yes. Where you'd be following all these things and blowing them up with the little stick. So we're at 7-Eleven on Fountain Avenue, West Hollywood, right by where we lived. And I'm playing these games. Bader's is there. Comes up to me. And he says, you know what these are? And I went, what? He said, they're training the kids. I said, who's training the kids? The government. Training us for what? For war. I said, what kind of war? He said, in outer space. (laughs) They're training us to fight. That's what this is. Mm. So put a pin in that. And then let's go to present time. Who is the military interested in these days? Kids who are video gamers, who know how to shoot people, that have had that that training on video games. He was right. Mm. Now, I don't know if it was the government that was making the machines. <laughs> I don't want to sound like a kook, but, <laughs> but you think about what he was saying. It's very interesting when you put it in today's context. Mm-hmm. His other one, which was much funnier, was McDonald's. You know what McDonald's are? I said, what? They're feeding stations. What do you mean feeding stations? He says to me, they're the same everywhere. No matter what city you go, no matter what country you go to. The McDonald's is the same. It's the same product. Tastes the same. package the same. They are training us to eat at feeding stations (laughs) because there's not going to be food available Mm. through overpopulation. They're training us. Wow. I love that one. Jeez." Out of his fucking mind. But hilarious. He had all kinds of great conspiracy theories. (laughs) (laughs) Mine is all about AI.
0: Well, I think that our compulsions and our greed will eventually be our undoing. Yeah. I really do think that.
1: So it's human animal behavior Mm -hmm. that prevents us from being careful, cautious, from pre-planning, from treating each other with a certain base humanity Mm -hmm. baseline
0: for humanity. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It it doesn't exist
0: and it's getting worse. It's not getting better. It's getting worse. You see the progression of it over the decades for sure. It will be our ultimate undoing. I'm sure. Yeah.
1: I mean, if any of this climate change stuff is, uh, is real. And the only reason I'm saying it that way is because I, I consider myself to be unique in this day and age And I consider myself to be unique in this way. If I am not an expert, if I don't have knowledge, I shut my fucking mouth. Mm -hmm. And it's one of the things that's become a real problem. We live on sound bites, rumors, stupid, you know, news feeds that come across on social media and people shoot their mouths off without having expertise, Mm -hmm. true expertise. What has happened? I'm willing to listen to anybody about anything if they're an expert, if they've mm-hmm. actually studied this. So when a climate change person comes on who really knows what they're talking about, <laughs> I listen. I'm not interested in listening to kooks and sound bites and, you know, politicians who have gone and, and watched a couple of TV shows and now they're shooting their mouths off. I hate it. Mm-hmm. I have a great amount of respect for people that. That are experts and who, who have studied and, and then have a position. And then I have a great amount of respect for people who are calm enough to listen to it. I'm not talking about hate speech. I'm talking about just this, like science.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Let's have the discussion. Train me, teach me. I love that. But don't browbeat me and chase me around with a pamphlet that I'm in a, you know, a petition that I'm supposed to sign because you want me to sign it. hmm. <laughs> you know? Yeah. That's the, that's the part of the, societal behavior these days that i'm not into
0: yeah wow listeners you did not bargain for a good amount of this did you <laughs> the philosophical part <laughs> people are
1: like shut that guy up <laughs>
0: <laughs> well thank you very much for coming by today oh it was great this was a uh a, a chat that went deeper much deeper than I anticipated it would. Yeah. But it was great. (laughs) I enjoyed it. This is the longest show we've ever done.
1: Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. I had a lot of fun talking to you and you took me into very interesting directions, places I didn't expect to go. I'm glad. But, um, that's what makes for an interesting
0: discussion. Absolutely. And a genuinely real discussion. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It was good. Thanks very much, Dave. I appreciate it. Thank you, Brent. It was really, really a lot of fun. All right. This has been No Sleep Till Subway with Brent Jensen and my very special guest, Mr. David Conspiracy Theorist. (laughs) I'm so not. I'm joking. (laughs) Mr. David Quentin Steinberg. Till next time, folks. Take good care.
1: Brent Jensen is the best-selling author of No Sleep Till Subway, Leftover People and All My
0: Favorite People Are Broken. All titles available in stores and on Amazon Worldwide.